You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Moment and celebrate that we came, we got to come in through these doors back here. Huh? How about that? It's only been about five and a half months, give or take. So praise God, we're back in there, and that is a that's a wonderful thing. On, on to you know, on the other side of that, I just introduced myself to someone who's been here for a year. So, <laughs> Madeline, I'm sorry about that, but we, it's nice to meet you again. Um, but uh, but all that being said, at least we have a. We're back in our space, and I'm really grateful for that. And I was kind of reminded of as we're reading through Leviticus and Numbers and these really kind of passages that just really pull you in, you know, um, (laughs) just how much effort and um, intentionality went into preparing for the service of worship. And it's just a reminder to me this week that we're not coming to a service. Like, this service wasn't organized for us, right? This is the service to our God, and we're bringing worship to him. So hopefully never, no one will ever ask you, you know, what do you think of the service today? Like, you know, nobody cares, really, because what did God think of the service today? Right? That's, what it, that's what it boils down to. Did I come bringing, I don't come empty-handed to the service of God, and in a few moments, we'll get to share a meal with our God, and that's um, beautiful. I am Derek, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and I am glad to be with you today, even with a text like this. So if you'll grab a copy of your Bible, um, we'll also have it on the screens, or you can grab a field journal. We've got a little table back over here in the corner, um, and those are free to you in black and some kind of a purple color. So whatever your preference is, but those are for you uh, to go to walk along with us in Mark. We'll be in chapter 6 as you heard. Today is week 24 in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we've we've entitled this Messiah, um, Seeing, Believing, and Following Jesus. Messiah is a Hebrew word, as we've mentioned over the course of this um, study. Uh, It's the Hebrew word for the word anointed one, and uh, in the Greek form, it's referred to as Christ. You'll see that mostly in the New Testament. That's not Jesus' last name. That is his title, Messiah. The Greek... um, uh, again, translates that in the New Testament more like more in, in that term. Uh, Mark has a particular point of emphasis with his um, with his account related to the life and work of Jesus Christ, and he's, it's intentionally organized to tell the story of God's saving action through the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark's Mark writes in a forceful, fresh, and immediate way. He uses terms um, that you would expect. Um, to hear from the perspective of an eyewitness account. He'll include supplementary details. Supplementary details is kind of what we're looking at this morning. He'll include reactions of the crowds, the apostles, the emotions of Jesus, and at times he'll even direct, um, uh, address the reader directly. Um, the non-Jewish Christian audience um, that he had in mind here were separated by time and distance from many of the details surrounding the context of Jesus' ministry and the gospel story, even though his was likely the earliest one written. So Mark brings the narrative to life. Um, his accounts are typically longer. He has fewer accounts in his gospel than the, 
many of the other gospel writers, but when he does address an account, it's much longer and gives us more detail. And I think it's, I think it's because he, um, he wants us to um, immerse us, to be immersed in the story. He wants us to not just merely observe in kind of a disconnected way. And he lays out the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this is one of those sections. So let's pray once more for ears to hear this morning. Father, thank you for John the Baptizer, who without working any miracles on his own, lived a life completely in the service of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and who by the example of his own life and the power of your word faithfully pointed all who would listen to come to you in repentance and belief. And we follow his example of faithfulness so that by the means of his holy example, we too may point many people to God, especially those who are blinded by unbelief, bound up by sin, and led astray by the passions and cares of this world. And in light of that, open our own eyes that we may see, our own ears that we may hear, our own hearts and our own minds that we may understand and turn to you, Lord Jesus, our hero, and be healed. Amen. So our passage today um, immediately follows Mark's uh, detail of the multiplication of Christ's ministry. The word about him is, uh, the word about Christ is spreading, and um, Jesus had just, as we talked about last week, sent out six pairs of disciples to continue what he had been doing, preaching repentance, healing the sick, driving out demons. And then we get this aside, describing what's swirling around in the centers of power related to these reports. So we'll begin in verse 14. This is the first part of that verse. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And so the it that he'd heard of uh, was from what we see in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 13. And Jesus had gone out teaching from village to village, and then verse 12. And they had gone out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. So this, um, this message and ministry of Jesus is starting to get the attention of the powers that be. And continuing in verse 14, some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And still others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. It had become kind of a cottage industry of sorts to try to figure out who Jesus was, what all this meant. And by this point, John the Baptist, who is, by the way, not the author of the Gospel of uh, John, that's John the Evangelist, by now John the Baptist is dead, but we don't know that. So Mark's kind of setting it up, and then he's going to tell us what that means. Um, but John had been famous before Jesus was. He was the forerunner, um, making a way for the, for the Lord, and we'll talk about that. But the, the miracles here were a new twist to this message of repentance. Some thought maybe that John had come back to life and was now in the form of the man Jesus, possessing supernatural powers. Others thought that uh, perhaps Jesus was a reappearing of the miracle-working Old Testament prophet Elijah who had been transported um, in a fiery chariot nine centuries earlier. Um, and then some thought that Jesus was um, probably just another run-of-the-mill prophet and that these miracle stories they were hearing were um, embellishments to, to help him notoriety. But it does tell us 
a lot about the consistency of the message between Jesus and his disciples and his cousin John. Because they were the same opinions that they'd had about John. So they're hearing about Jesus and they're saying, well, we're not sure what this is. Maybe it's Elijah, maybe it's a prophet. Maybe When we read in the Gospel of John chapter 1, um, this exchange related to John the Baptist. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, well, who are you? We didn't answer. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, well, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight away for the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So people were trying to find a category for what this was, looking for explanations. And while miracles were a remarkable component of Christ's earthly ministry and that of the disciples and even the early apostles, they were not the central element of his ministry, or John's for that matter. There's not a record of John the Baptist ever performing a miracle. So why the confusion? Why the close connection? I think it was the message, the consistency between them, the gospel of repentance and a call to follow in faithfulness. If we go back to Mark chapter 1 from earlier, uh, late last fall, remember in verse 4, it says, John appeared, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then a few verses later in chapter 1, verse 14, and now John was, now after John was arrested, so John's message, repent, believe, baptize. Now John's arrested. Jesus comes into Galilee. He's, he's just finished his 40 days being tempted in the wilderness. He's kind of coming onto the scene. He's proclaiming the gospel of God, just as John was, and saying the difference being the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is now at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And we remember that at its core, the gospel is a declaration of a kingdom. John was the forerunner, heralding a coming king and preparing the way for people to thrive in this advancing kingdom. Jesus, revealed as the king who is inaugurating a kingdom that has dominion over the seen and the unseen, over the natural and the supernatural, over demons and death and disease, insists now that the time has come. And the response to this news is to turn, according to John, according to Jesus, according to his disciples, turn from your godless ways and yield to the Messiah who is to come. So now back to Herod, who we'll talk about more here in just a minute. For a king or even a wannabe like Herod was, to bow to another king who looks more like a peasant and whose herald is a wild man, that must have been a lot to process for him. I think that's part of what he's dealing with. So we see, back to Mark 6, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So he's 
um, hearing about these stories, hearing about this Jesus, he's hearing about this ministry, and then he's hearing everybody's opinion about what that is, and he, he goes with option A. This must be John. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So this is Herod Antipas. This is the Roman empowered ruler of Galilee at the time. Mark refers to him as king, um, either because that's how he referred to himself or with some irony, um, since it was a self-proclaimed kingship. He was a tetrarch, which was kind of a, I don't know, maybe a mayor or something. I mean, he had some authority, but he was not a king. Uh, and this self-proclaimed kingship eventually led to his downfall under the Roman emperor Caligula. Um, his father was also Herod, um, known as Herod the Great. He was, um, that was a real namesake. Both of these guys were awful. Um, and he ruled as king around the time of Jesus' birth. And I think he had a similar reaction to the, the proclamation of a coming king with the um, slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. So Herod hears about this message and the miracles of Jesus, and he dismisses all other possibilities and decides, no, it's John the Baptist back from the dead performing miracles, walking around in Galilee. Um, and I wonder if, since he was alive after Christ's death and resurrection, if that ever came back around in his thinking. Um, either way, this reaction is likely the result of a guilty conscience. And I imagine he was tormented by the actions that he had taken with John. Because we last, we last hear of John in Mark's gospel back in chapter 1 again, verse 14, when um, it says kind of passively that John had been put in prison and then Jesus steps onto the scene. But here we learn why he was arrested and what happened to him after his imprisonment. So back to verse 18, Mark chapter 6. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And we get that from, again, the, uh, the, the work we're doing together in reading through the Bible in our time in Leviticus. You would have just read this a few, uh, several days ago. Back in Leviticus chapter 18, there's some rules for what's appropriate. <laughs> and um, so marrying your brother, uh, marrying your brother's wife was inappropriate. And the fact that, um, not just inappropriate, it was unlawful, but Herodias was also his niece in some, in some weird, weird connection. So um, it was just not a good thing. And uh, John told him about it. And Herodias didn't like that and had a grudge against him. And uh, we read here and uh, wanted to put him to death. But she couldn't, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. So really his, his arrest was more protective custody probably than, than something intended to be punitive. But it's fascinating to me here that um, Herod fears John and John's reputation more than he fears God, right? Um, that's what kind of caught him off guard, but he wouldn't go the next step to fear the God that John worshiped and loved. And when Herod heard him, when he heard John, he was greatly perplexed. It disturbed him. It was confusing to him. And yet he couldn't get away from it. He wanted to hear him. He received him gladly. Herod was a mess. 
He knew that his marriage was against the law of Moses, and John brought it up, reminded him. Herod and Herodias had both divorced their former partners to marry each other, which was, again, religiously scandalous and unlawful, but it was also politically careless. Jewish historian Josephus records that Herod's attempts at forging political alliances through this union proved to be an utter failure and uh, led to his demise. But John's outspoken criticism against biblical, um, on, based on biblical authority to undermine Herod's reputation, and it enraged um, Herodias, and it embarrassed them both. But there was something about John's character, about his way of life, about his message, this, this description of righteous and holy character. He was set apart with something different about him. And it intrigued Herod enough to keep him out of Herodias' grasp um, and to keep listening to him, even though it confused him. And I would add that hearing is never enough, and curiosity is never enough. Don't stop short of hearing and, 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 and thinking about God and failing to take the step of belief. Back to verse 21. But an opportunity came, and I would add for Herodias to make an attempt on John's life, right? She's looking for this way to assassinate him or to... Um, uh, Put him to death. And so when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, she had her chance. This was her opportunity. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And I would just again note this is um, not like a school program. Okay, so Herodias' daughter, who we'll learn is Salome or Salome. Um, it was not like they kind of came up and they did a little twirl and, oh, isn't she cute? That wasn't what was going on. And this wasn't a birthday party like we would think of a birthday party. This was a riotous, just hedonistic thing. And um, Herodias sends her daughter in to inflame their passions. It was provocative um, and adding more and more to this situation where it was probably already sinful and um, there was so much about just pride and ego and all of that and then you add this and the king got caught up in it and his own daughter-in-law, step, no, stepdaughter, his own stepdaughter in a weird, and niece, I think. <laughs> but I think he, anyway. I just, I really got confused. I'm trying to draw these connections, and I'm like, this was, this was a muddled mess, but he got caught up in it. He probably got confused. I'm like, I'm not even sure. Um, but anyway, he said, ask me whatever you want. I'll give it to you. And then he vowed. Then he makes this big blustering kind of statement. Whatever you ask, I'll give it to you, even up to half the kingdom. So even if, even if that was, you know, a little bit of hyperbole, there was, it, it was enough. He, he was going to have to do something. It wasn't the first impulsive, um, foolish, or senseless thing that Herod did. It wouldn't be the last. But it just reminded me as I'm thinking through that moment and that scene and just how just what I meant, that sin makes you stupid. And I would just encourage you to remember sin makes you stupid. Um, we think we're cool, but we're, in the, we're, we're not in the light. We're in the dark um, when we're in that. And it, you're not going to, um, 
stumble into the light, recklessly pursuing and immersing yourself in sin. Back to verse 24. And so she, Herodias' daughter, went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? So again, this makes me think this is a setup for Herod, right? So here's Herodias waiting in the wings. Party's going on. It's crazy. She sends Siloam in. And, and he, this, all this comes to fruition, which Herodias assumed would happen. And Siloam comes out. So what do you want me to ask for? And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Now, there's this premeditation to this. She was, re- she was ready for it. And Siloam immediately came in with haste. So she, she doesn't wait a couple of days to do this. She does it right now to put Herod on the spot in front of his guests. And she says to the king, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So we learn Herodias' daughter's name from Josephus' account uh, of Siloam. Her eagerness adds to the urgency and the gratuitous cruelty of this murderous request. She runs back in with haste. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a platter. Her mother had not asked for that. And in fact, Herodias' comment, I'd like the head of John the Baptist, very easily could have been Again, just a suggestion that we, that he schedule an execution. But the daughter takes that and goes out and says, I want it right now, and I want to make a scene with it. Sin is a cancer, and it always infects others in an escalating way, especially those that we influence, including our children or those who we mentor. What you entertain and allow will likely not transfer evenly to the people that are closest to you. And the old cliche, what you do in moderation, your children will do in excess. There's this dynamic where that is really true. People, Herodias just wants him dead because he's a burner's idol. And now Salome has been exploited, sent out to dance provocatively for her stepfather, and, and is become consumed with this to the point of horror, just horribly. And in verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry. That, that phrase, he's overwhelmed with sorrow, like it, it breaks him. He's deeply grieved and intensely sad. So it hit, that request hits him. He was not, I don't think he was expecting this. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He was more worried about his reputation with men than doing the right thing before God. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and he beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter. And he gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. It's just awful. And why it happened was just awful. For just a stupid, off-the-cuff thing. Sin is going to take you further than you want to go. 
It's going to keep you there longer than you want to stay. And it's going to do more damage than you ever thought imaginable. Herod was torn up over these turn of events. He'd actually been trying to protect John. Although I'm not sure that if I was John, I would have been grateful for the help. Thanks for putting me in prison to keep me alive. There was an opportunity in this moment, even in this very difficult moment politically and reputation-wise, for Herod to do the right thing. And there is for us always an opportunity in that moment, even when we've found ourselves between a rock and a hard place. And 2 Corinthians 7 talks about this. Paul teaches for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience. So we've got this sorrow that has just racked the king, Herod. And he, there's this kind of sorrow God wants us to experience that leads us away from sin. And results in salvation. It results in saving help. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. There's freedom in the kind of sorrow that leads me away from my sin in repentance to salvation. But worldly sorrow lacks repentance and results in spiritual death. The king was sorry. And he had a choice to make in that moment. How am I going to, what am I going to do with this? When his disciples heard of it, they came, this is verse 29, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. The passage that we're reading starts with, and Herod heard of it, and we see the escalating events. When his disciples heard of what had happened, they honored John. They came and took care of the body and they laid it in a tomb. And Matthew's gospel tells us that um, his followers even went and informed Jesus. And um, what we're about to read or what we'll study next week with the feeding of the 5,000 is right after this news has come to Jesus about his cousin and the circumstances of it. Jesus was actually getting away into the wilderness to grieve to get alone and to pray and to process. And on the way, the crowds come and feeds the 5,000. This is heavy for me. Um, it's kind of like the ending of the movie Braveheart. I was watching that on AMC or something the other day again. I, just, I wish it didn't end like that. Like, it's such a good movie. And it ends just, ugh. Like, man. Like, I know it's a true story, but can't we? I mean, it's Hollywood. You all, you all make stuff up all the time. It was just brutal and unnecessary. I want him to storm the castle, you know, and take over. And, and I hear about this, and it affects me. St. John was so dear to us in our faith. Um, it makes me question the plan. It's been referred to as the two passions in the Gospels, the, the passion of John and then the passion of Christ. But our lives don't always go the way we think. They take turns that don't make sense. We'll experience hurtful things at the hands of others. The powerful will seem to get away with whatever they want. We hear of injustice and senseless cruelty 
And if you're like me, sometimes you just look up into the sky and you sigh. That we can't underestimate the message of Christ, even in those circumstances. And we also shouldn't underestimate the resistance to the message of Christ. Externally, and in our own hearts, when we hit those moments where, what am I going to do? Am I going to be afraid of what the people will think and say? Or am I willing to follow Christ in this moment? Repent. We shouldn't underestimate the passions of our hearts. The importance of being mindful of the company we keep. Or of the damage of accumulating and escalating sin. Nor should we underestimate the influence of faithfulness or the power of Christ to keep his promises. John 16, tells us of two promises that bring peace and encouragement when we don't have all the answers. In Christ's last moments before his crucifixion, he's talking to them about what they're about to face. And he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And here's his first promise. In this world, you will have trouble. But I'm telling you this so that you can have peace within that true thing. You will have trouble, but take heart. Be encouraged. I have overcome the world. So before we go this morning, I want us to consider the players in this story, not necessarily in the order which they appeared. Start with John the Baptist, the forerunner, the preacher, the herald, the truth teller, the unique one among men. What did Jesus say about John the Baptist? Well, Matthew tells us in chapter 11, starting in verse 7, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. And I'm wondering, this is before John's death. I'm wondering if Christ is thinking about Herod's court. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How? Because we came after the king, not before like John did. Our privileges and what we have received because of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension are beyond anything John could have imagined. Now, he also has received those in arrears, but in this moment, those of us entering into the kingdom of heaven are ahead. What a marvelous thought. From the days of John the Baptist, verse 12, until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, or the one coming in the spirit of Elijah. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's, the, that's John the 
Baptist we're talking about. In this scenario, who's senselessly beheaded over no reason. And they're John's disciples. They were honoring and fearless and humble and faithful. Then you have the people who had opinions about Jesus. They're unreliable, kind of missing it like a bad game of telephone. Remember the old game, telephone? So back, there was a time when phones had cords. So I'll just do a little history lesson. They used to have these squiggle cords that would kind of stretch, and they were attached to like a surface. Like you could, you could have them, but there was another cord that came out of the back of that that got plugged in too, right? So um, we had a really long one coming out of our kitchen so I could go around the corner, and, and uh, she wouldn't overhear me talking to my buddies, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, but you remember the game, right? So the game of telephone was you'd whisper in somebody's ear like you'd say a phrase and then you'd go around 40 people or whatever it is. And what, what, what was the phrase? And you get to the end and it would always get jumbled up and messed up. And that's, it kind of feels like that a little bit. Like everybody's got an idea of who Jesus was and what, all, who Jesus, what he was doing and what all this meant. And they're all just kind of, and by the time you get around to Herod, he doesn't know what to think. They're apathetic, they're easily influenced. And that's what happens when we listen to more to other people about who Jesus is. And we don't go ask Jesus about who he is by getting into the Gospels. We don't have one account of who Jesus is. There's, there's only one other place where you have a repetition of describing events. You've got the Kings and the Chronicles, and they have very different purposes, even though you're going to have some overlap. The only other place, you have four stories about one man. And John tells us at the end, if we had all the books and all the ink and all the world, you couldn't fill it with everything about him. And I just think sometimes we need to spend less time absorbing what other people are telling us about who Jesus is, including me. This morning, I take this and go meet him and find him and sit at his feet and listen to him and admire him and think about him and fall in love with him. He is glorious. There is Herodias resentful and power-hungry and self-centered and recalcitrant and murderous and ruthless and malicious, just... And then influencing her daughter, Salome, who was following in the evil steps of her mother, and she was exploited. I was thinking about her and just, man, she just trafficked in some ways. And then, of course, there's Herod. He's proud and he's insecure. Um, he's king, you know, he was, he was being manipulated, and yet he was a murderer and a politician, which is worse. <laughs> Uncontrolled lust, driven by passions and reputation. He was careless, and he was curious. He was just really human. Like, like that, that's like my description. Arrogant and insecure. Political. What are people thinking? It's just easy to find myself in this guy. And Herod missed the grace given to him. He's not the first or the last 
person to do this, but he presumed on it. And the Holy Spirit pursues us. He speaks through others. And in this case, John, and the testimonies of Jesus' ministry, he speaks to us through his word, which we have access to. It's right here. It's on our phones. It's all around us. And this was known by Herod, and he was preached, he was reminded of it by John. And then our own conscience. Herod knew this was the wrong thing to do, but he didn't suffer a crisis of conscience in a vacuum. He had repeatedly and consistently ignored the right thing for so long that this was just another step in the same direction. We, we all... We all have blood on our hands. And we don't have to stay on that trajectory. We have these examples. We see them of men who are around Jesus all the time. Peter and Judas are two examples, right? Around Jesus all the time. Both betrayed and denied. But one grieves with sorrowful, a godly sorrow, and returns to Christ and becomes a pillar in the faith. The other betrays and with worldly sorrow hangs himself. And where Jesus says, there's nobody who was ever born greater than John the Baptist he says about Judas, it would have been better had he not been born at all. We cannot keep the truth about Christ and the word of God in a box and treat it like a party favor. Taking it out, turning it over in our hands, curious, even admiring. This cannot be done without consequences. Eventually you will kill it in your hand and in your heart, and then it will haunt you. There's no halfway. Keep it at a distance. Dip in and out option with Jesus. And the greatest risk you will ever take in your life is picking up a part of it and then missing out on all of it. What have you heard? What are others in the world saying about him? Is Jesus a curiosity to you? Is he, is he all-consuming? Is a defining reality in our lives. Even as Christians, we find ourselves drifting from this place. Sin will always lead to more sin. Living for the likes of others more than for the lordship of Jesus Christ will always destroy. Herod was extremely sorry over this, but he did not repent. He did not turn back to Jesus to find what he was looking for. He was looking for safety. He was looking for security. He was looking for admiration. He was looking for um, popularity. He was looking for a path to more power. He was looking for all of the things he thought were important and was willing to literally do anything, apparently, to get that. But he didn't repent. That He was standing right before him. And this resulted in a senseless death and another nail in the coffin of his own soul. So please, fight the drift. Stumble forward. 
your failure, your sin, the situation you're in is not final and it's not the defining characteristic of your life. Jesus Christ is the defining characteristic of your life. Humble yourself and stay low before King Jesus. Repent early and often and you'll find yourself repenting less. And it is not about always getting it right or having a clear path that won't result in difficulty or suffering. It is about a sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to relief from guilt and shame, and that results in the saving help of Christ on your behalf. Humility is a gift of grace that invites more grace and empowers us to live faithfully even when it's hard. Faithfulness has repentance at its core. This is where true freedom lies where guilt evaporates and rest can be known. For whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And we just say. So finally, I want to end with considering just a little bit more about this Jesus in a passage in John 1. Jesus' works of power and authority are spreading the kingdom of the gospel. The message of the kingdom of the gospel is going out, and John dies proclaiming his kingdom. Listen with me in John 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light that all might believe through him, Jesus, the light. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Not of natural, not some natural way, but of a God's own design and plan, who were born not of blood or the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. This was God's doing. And the word, this Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. We've heard about him. We have seen it. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, John the Baptist, and cried out, This is he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and Herod couldn't, wouldn't, didn't keep it, and neither can we. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He did, he can, and in him we will. No one has ever seen God the Father, but the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him, the Father, known. That is our path. And John exclaims in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is this Jesus that we cling to this morning. Not the Jesus we've heard others' opinions about, not the Jesus our guilt makes us think of. Not the Jesus that people want to ignore. The Jesus who is a threat to our kingdoms. The Jesus who is full of grace and truth. The true light. And by whom we can receive grace upon grace. 
the Jesus John was willing to die for. So may we abandon all that we hold dear. All that we think of is important this morning and respond once again to his invitation to receive him as the true king by leading lives of repentance and faithfulness out of shame and regret into salvation. His perpetual and permanent life-giving help. Let's share in this communion meal together. We'll have servers on both sides of the platform. There'll be a self-serve station here in the back with some prepackaged cups as well. Let us pray, and then we will partake. All praise and glory is yours, Heavenly Father, for in your tender mercy you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. He made there by the sacrifice of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And in the Gospels, he instituted and commanded us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death and sacrifice until he comes again. And so now, merciful Father, in your great goodness, we ask you to bless and sanctify with your word and Holy Spirit these gifts of bread and wine, that we, receiving them according to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's instructions, and in remembrance of his life and death, may be filled with the graces of his most blessed body and blood. We read in the scriptures that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he continued, this blood is the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we de declare the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain with us always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.